We're architects and contractors. Build buildings. I think on that level of description, it's completely ordinary. I suppose the part that isn't is that we're trying to do something that no one else has ever tried to do in the 20th century. Could you verbalize what that thing is? Well, make God appear in the middle of a field. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast with myself, your host, Dan Palmer. I'm recording this on the 28th of March 2022 and 11 days ago, on the 17th of March, someone called Christopher Alexander passed away. Christopher Alexander was a visionary, radical Architect, philosopher, writer, a creator and a builder, an artist and a poet. And this project, Making Permaculture Stronger, would not exist without Christopher Alexander's work, and particularly his writing. He wrote many books in the course of his life. And as a As a celebration of Christopher Alexander's life and work, this is a special edition, this episode, where I've written in the show notes a a blog post accompanying this episode, and I'll be sharing uh, some quotes from some of Alexander's books, a poem by a past client of his and various other things, and we'll see how it goes. I... I want to mention at the start that one of the, well, I'd say the primary way in which I personally uh, am honouring the the legacy of Christopher Alexander's life and work is with the creation and development of what I'm calling living design process, which is directly sourced in and inspired by Christopher Alexander's conception and, and work and experimentation and practical examples of of what he called living process all i did was put the word design in the middle and and have developed it with input from other streams and my and based on my own experiences and in two weeks from now the first ever workshop or first ever online workshop on living design process is happening so if you're interested in being part of that journey you can check that out at livingdesignprocess.org Okay, well let's let's do this. And the URL for the blog post accompanying this episode will be makingpermaculturestronger.net slash Christopher Alexander. So the title is Celebrating the Life and Work of Christopher Alexander. And I write I guess I'll, this will be a combination of me reading out stuff I've written, reading out quotes from Alexander and other sources. There are also a few sound bites of Alexander himself speaking. Um, and no doubt I will be adding uh, emergent commentary as we go along. So I, I, I started off by writing, On March 17, 2022, at 85 years of age, Christopher Alexander passed away peacefully in his home in West Sussex, England. This post 
this episode, celebrates his life and for me personally the sheer magnitude his work has had on the course of my life, including making permaculture stronger as a project. If any of you have been touched by this project, then you have been indirectly impacted by Alexander's lifelong quest toward life, beauty and wholeness. And I've got a few links uh, where you can go and read a bit of a bio and find out more about who Alexander was. And, and I imagine uh, a fair few of you out there have heard of Christopher Alexander. He's vi- held in high regard by the, like the founders of, of perm- the originators of permaculture, both Bill Morrison and, and David Holmgren. Uh, really acknowledged the, the significance of his work and mo- most permaculture books. Well, certainly books touching on permaculture design that I'm aware of draw on on Alexander's work, including the pattern language for a forest, edible forest gardens that Jave Jackie developed. David Hongren's most recent book, Richer Suburbia. And there's one by Peter Bain, what's that? I think it's called Forest Gardening. Uh, among the many permaculture books that draw heavily on Alexander's work. Uh, there's also a couple of links to video recordings of, of talks I've given in the past uh, mentioning aspects of how Alexander's approach has impacted my own and uh, also how, how Alexander contributed to the creation and the shape of this project, Making Permaculture Stronger. I'm going to read, a, and I've got photos of Alexander sprinkled throughout the, the page at makingpermaculturestronger.net slash Christopher Alexander, if you'd like to check those out as, as you listen. I'll, I'll make sure this is a standalone thing if you like to listen only. So next I'm going to read out a poem by a past client of Alexander's called Anne Medlock, who Alexander and his team worked with Anne and her partner in the creation of a home, a house and a home. And thanks, Anne, for your permission to share this poem here about the process of of Alexander supporting your house creation. Alexander sculpts a building. Out of air and wisdom, waving his hands, squinting his eyes, to see what only he and God can see in this clearing on the bluff. Listening to something we cannot hear, he brings into being a house so solid, silent and calm, so embracing, consoling and inevitable that it draws in and restores every open soul that finds its way here. And many do. Pilgrims who have heard, who have seen a photograph, who sense that here is something mysterious, rare, perhaps even inspired. On a clear blue afternoon, we sit at a long table in the sun, the house embracing this garden, and all of us who bask here, amid amid the calendulas and ferns. Feasting on tabbouleh and cold birds, we talk of poetry and paintings of terraces in Tuscany and homemade wine, of our work, our passions, our quests. We are friends gathered here, 
by the grace that emanates from this holy place. At Christmas, the clan assembles. The tree, dressed in familiar ornaments, touches the coffered ceiling and sends the scent of balsam to mingle with fire, roast and cakes. Thick walls hold out the cold, the wind, and every danger of the world we know. Comets cut across the high windows as we are drawn in and held fast together, blessed by the house that Alexander made while listening to God. And there's a photograph that Anne suggested accompanied the poem. One with Alexander standing on the site, waving his hand around, and another of the, the home itself. Thank you, Anne. And so next in the, the post, I have three examples of design and creation processes that I stewarded and helped hold that were directly inspired by Christopher Alexander. So for me, these are experiments, um, all relatively early experiments in what I'm calling living design process. And the first one was oh, probably, over, I don't know, like eight years ago now, something like that, where I supported my parents in the design and creation of a, a house-scale garden on the small farm property they live on. Second one was when I took responsibility for the design and creation for some large rooftop and different height or level gardens. Uh, in a large suburban development called East Brunswick Village in suburban Melbourne. So I got to try out uh, an Alexander-inspired approach in a uh, kind of large-scale conventional development context, which was a ride, I tell you. I could relate to many aspects of the experience Alexander shared in his last book, which is called The Battle for the Life and Beauty of the earth, where he shares the story of the creation of an Asian campus in Japan. And I also share a snippet of a, a, a process, or the beginnings of a process of redesigning a, a garden at a Steiner school. These three are among so many uh, processes that just simply wouldn't have happened, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have happened at all, and certainly wouldn't have happened anything like the way they did happen if it wasn't for, for the work of Alexander. The first one, by the way, I don't think I've shared before, so I'm, I'm sharing it publicly for the first time here. It's almost two hours long, very in-depth um, sharing of the, 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 the detailed dynamics of a, of a design process right through to the creation and evolution of the, the garden thereafter. So I feel it's time to hear Alexander's own voice again. This clip I'll share now comes from a YouTube presentation called Christopher Alexander Patterns and Architecture that I'll link to and embed in the show notes. And I was pleased to see it's had almost 100,000 views. All of my life I've spent trying to learn how to produce living structure in the world. That means towns, streets, buildings, rooms, gardens, places which are themselves living 
or alive. So now I'm going to read out a series of quotes from several of Alexander's books. He wrote a lot of books. And I've selected quotes that, that touched me, that impacted my, my journey. And I invite any of you to, to add quotes or statements from Alexander or, or, or anything else that's relevant in the comments in the, in the show notes. And I'll start with uh, by reading out the transcription of something Alexander said in interviews conducted by Stephen Gabbro in for the 1983 book, Christopher Alexander, The Search for a New Paradigm in Architecture, which if you're into Alexander and you've never read this, I'd really recommend it in terms of getting a deeper insight to who Alexander was as a person. And I'll abbreviate as I go, communicating the gist of, of what Alexander said. <clears throat> Starting on page 89. Ever since I was a small boy, I have loved making things. At one time, when I was about 15, I spent almost a whole year making one tiny locomotive. I'll put a photo of this locomotive in the, in the show notes. I went first to the Brighton Locomotive Works to get a blueprint of the engine. It was a type originally built in about 1880. I took it home and built a tiny model at four millimeters to one foot of this engine. I made every single thing, the boiler, the wheels, the cab, the handrails on the cab, tiny faucets where the boiler can be emptied, on and on, day after day. I used to sit for hours simply soldering two pieces of wire together. It might take me a day to make two faucets like that, perhaps two days. For month after month I sat, cutting, shaping every tiny piece of brass until I made the complete locomotive. I have exactly the same love today in building buildings or building furniture. For example, during the years 76 to 79, I used to spend day after day out on the site in Martinez, trying our gunite experiments. This is a way of building which I have developed in which one shoots high-strength, stiff concrete into guides to build up a beautiful building. The technique is very sophisticated technically. It took months simply to adjust the equipment to get it running right. We'd go day after day shoveling concrete, running the compressor, trying different hoses, different nozzles, different additives, different ways of holding the hose, different pressures, different kinds of guide work. Often at the end of a day of shooting concrete, I would be covered in sand and concrete from head to foot. Especially your hair gets caked with it and nothing in the world could make me happier. And also put in a photo from this book of Alexander caked, face caked in concrete. I have a small workshop which opens directly from my living room where I make furniture. I'm never happier than when I'm making something in this workshop, a tray or a small table. And I do many experiments there too. I fire my own tiles in a small kiln, make stamps for stamping and forming concrete, try the shapes of new elements of some building or another. I am quite convinced in my own mind that the endless stream of theories which I have been making up and all my efforts to find theories which do give us an accurate picture of what is going on when a building smiles, that all of these would have been quite impossible if they had been developed from some purely theoretical point of view. It is this instinct and this love which have really given the theories the shape and power they have. I do not believe that someone more remote from the act of making could identify what is going on in a made thing with sufficient accuracy to get anywhere near the truth. 
And next I will share a quote from the Timeless Way of Building, which came out in 1979. Alexander's talking about the, the, the potential for living in a, in a state of resolution amongst the forces at play in a person. He says, and I, by the way, I, I translated this into second person. It was written in, in third person. I, I like it better this way. You are alive when you are wholehearted, true to yourself, true to your own inner forces, and able to act freely according to the nature of the situations you are in. To be happy and to be alive in this sense are almost the same. Of course, if you are alive, you are not always happy in the sense of feeling pleasant. Experiences of joy are balanced by experiences of sorrow. But the experiences are all deeply felt, and above all, you are whole and conscious of being real. To be alive in this sense is not a matter of suppressing some forces or tendencies at the expense of others. It is a state of being in which all forces which arise in you can find expression. You live in balance among the forces which arise in you. You are unique as the pattern of forces which arises is unique. You are at peace since, since there are no disturbances created by underground forces which have no outlet, at one with yourself and your surroundings. This state cannot be reached merely by inner work. There is a myth, sometimes widespread, that you need do only inner work in order to be alive like this. That you are entirely responsible for your problems and that to cure yourself, you need only change yourself. This teaching has some value since it is so easy to imagine that your problems are caused by others. But it is a one-sided and mistaken view which also maintains the arrogance of the belief that the individual is self-sufficient and not dependent in any essential way on their surroundings. The fact is, you are so far formed by your surroundings that your state of harmony depends entirely on your harmony with your surroundings. Some kinds of physical and social circumstances help you come to life. Others make it very difficult. Really significant for me, this, this kind of undercutting in a way the, the split or separation between inner and outer work. And also this this idea that to me is core to the kind what Alexander means by a living process, which is a process that's rigorously and in a focused way is, is able to reveal or uncover the, the actual forces at play in a situation inside and outside. And then find novel or unique formats and forms that resolve them, that are that are birthed from, informed by, energized by, and bring them into into resolution, which is an endless process. And so this next quote from the Timeless Way of Building changed my whole approach to design, shifted everything. It turned uh, everything I had understood design to be up to that point upside down. So I'm going to read it out. Alexander wrote, This, as in this approach to design, is a differentiating process. 
It views design as a se sequence of acts of complexification. Structure is injected into the whole by operating on the whole and crinkling it, not by adding little parts to one another. In the process of differentiation, the whole gives birth to its parts. The parts appear as folds in a cloth of three-dimensional space which is gradually crinkled. The form of the whole and the parts come into being simultaneously. The image of the differentiating process is the growth of an embryo. It starts as a single cell. The cell grows into a ball of cells. Then, through a series of differentiations, each building on the last, the structure becomes more and more complex until a finished human being is formed. The first thing that happens is that this ball gets an inside, a middle layer, and an outside, the endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm, which will later turn into skeleton, flesh, and skin, respectively. Then this ball of cells with three layers gets an axis. The axis is laid down in the endoderm and will become the spine of the finished person. Then this ball with an axis gets a head at one end. Later the secondary structures, eyes, limbs, develop in relation to the spinal axis and the head. And so on. At every stage of development, new structure is laid down on the basis of the structure which has been laid down so far. The process of development is, in essence, a sequence of operations, each one of which differentiates the structure which has been laid down by the previous operations. Wow, it's still such, I've read this so many times, it's still such a powerful, like to me, to, to, to flesh out and develop and manifest the approach to design that is being pointed towards or, or indicated or implied here is is an incredible journey a little bit later he he says in nature a thing is always born and developed as a whole a baby starts from the first day of its conception as a whole and as a whole as an embryo every day until it is born it is not a sequence of adding parts together but a whole which expands crinkles differentiates itself and it still amazes me, you know, you, you hold your hand up, look at your hand. And contemplate the way that hand came to be. And then reflect on how gross the clash or the discrepancy between the underlying dynamics of this, that process, this ongoing process of differentiation and crinkling, where the parts and the whole uh, emerge in, in a complementary sort of synergy uh, to the to the mainstream processes of design and creation, which is so centered in this idea of what are the different parts, what are the different pre-existing pre-existing parts, and how are we going to join them together? Okay, the last quote from that I'll read from this book, the Timeless Way of Building, is starts like this: Get rid of the ideas which come into your mind. Get rid of pictures you've seen in magazines, 
friends' houses, insist on the pattern and nothing else. The pattern and the real situation together will create the proper form within your mind without your trying to do it, if you will allow it to happen. This is the power of the language and the reason why the language is creative. Your mind is a medium within which the creative spark that jumps between the pattern and the world can happen. You yourself are only the medium for this creative spark, not its originator. And Alexander's talking about the, about the idea of his, his particular definition of, a, of what he means by a pattern and a pattern language, where a pattern is a, uh, is a, is a, it's a tension resolution ensemble or, or, or a set. Or a pat, uh, what he means by a pattern is a generic description of a recurring issue that crops up in a, in a certain design context. So, so for example, you're working on a house, and a simple example of a, the, the tension that the patterns start with is that you're standing in a room and you want to be standing by the window in the sun, but you also feel like sitting down. You've been working hard outside or whatever, but and yet the chair is a little bit away from the window, or you can't feel like you can't get, get it quite into the light, so you, you're torn. You want to be in both places, standing up against the window, or up against the window and down on the chair. And so the, these two forces at play are in conflict and they set up this tension. And the generic resolution of that might be a window seat, where the window is a seat and the seat is a window, so you can simultaneously be there in the light and the view and, and whatever, and, and sitting down as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a generic um, pattern for, that, well, within this pattern, there's the tension and a, and a potential resolution of it. And in his book, The Pattern Language, there's hundreds and hundreds of these these patterns at all different levels of scale, from nation states right down to how you organize your cutlery drawer and your coffee cups. I love that sense too, which Alexander invited me into this experience of me not having to provide the design, but me becoming a space through which the design is birthed. Uh, I still I still remember the first time I really got that and really felt that and just how kind of shockingly beautiful and powerful it is and, and how the quality and the adaptedness and the fittedness and the rightness of the forms that are emerging is just off the charts compared to anything that I would have arrived at if I was in the more traditional design, impositional design expert uh, frame. Okay, well, let's keep going with this experiment. I'm going to read out quotes from two more books. Volumes two and three of Alexander's magnum opus, Masterwork, The Nature of Order, which is a four-volume essay on the art of building and the nature of the universe. And it was book two of this series of volumes that out of all everything Alexander wrote, this book is the thing that had the most significant impact on my approach to to design. So I'm going to read out a, a bunch of shorter quotes from this book. I, I think I'm going to... I'll see what happens. I'll comment if I feel like it, but I might just re, go from one quote to the next. So starting on page four, and I'll invite you in this, in this quote, you can substitute another word like permaculture or whatever you want for, for, for architecture. 
Alexander says, our current view of architecture rests on too little awareness of becoming as the most essential feature of the building process. Architects are too concerned with the design of the world, in brackets, its static structure, and not yet concerned enough with the design of the generative processes that create the world, in brackets, its dynamic structure. Later in the book, in our profession of architecture, there is no conception yet of process itself as a budding, as a flowering, as an unpredictable, unquenchable unfolding through which the future grows from the present in a way that is dominated by the goodness of the moment. There's a slightly longer quote, page 136. Alexander says, in a living system, what is to be always grows out of what is, supports it, extends its structure smoothly and continuously, elaborates new form, sometimes starting, startlingly new form, but without ever violating the structure which exists. When this rule is violated, as it was far too often in 20th century development, chaos emerges, a kind of cancer occurs, harm is done. All in modern society succeeded in the last century in creating an ethos where buildings, plans, objects are judged only by themselves and not by the extent to which they enhance and support the world. This means that nature has been damaged because it is ignored and trampled on, trampled upon. It means that ancient parts of towns and cities have been trampled because the modernist view saw no need to respect them, to protect them. But even more fundamental, it came about because the idea of creativity, which became the norm, assumed that it is creative to make things that are unrelated, in brackets, sometimes disoriented and disconnected just in order to be new, and that this is valuable, where in fact it is merely stupid and represents a misunderstanding, a deep misapprehension of how things are. Creativity comes about when we discover the new within a structure already latent within the present. It is our respect for what is that leads us to the most beautiful discoveries. In art as well as in architecture, our most wonderful creations come about. When we draw them out as extensions and enhancements of what exists already. The denial of this point of view is the chief way in which 20th century development destroyed the surface of the earth. And later in the book, we now Alexander's now talking about the, the dynamics of what he calls a living process. He says, at each stage in its evolution, the process, when it is a living one, always starts from the wholeness as it currently exists at that moment. The work is complete in some respects, in some respects incomplete. At the next moment, we take a new step, introducing one new bit of structure into the whole. The new structure we introduce may be large, medium or tiny, but the point is that at every stage of every life-creating process, 
the new bit of structure which is injected to transform and further differentiate the previously existing wholeness will always extend, enhance, intensify the structure of the previous wholeness. Later in the book, we're up to page 340 now. Remember, you can read these at the, on the show notes if you, if you want. I know for a lot of them, you probably want to listen to or read several times, right? There's a lot in them, a lot to be unpacked. Anyway, on page 340, he says, The enigma is that something new, unique, previously unseen, even innovative and astonishing, arises from the extent to which we are able to attend to what is there, and able to derive what is required from what is actually there, and that all this, then, will lead to astonishing surprises. This is one of many places where Alexander undercuts a lot of unconscious separations that dominate our thinking about design. One of those separations is the split between sustaining what exists and creating new stuff. He's pointing out the living process needs both of those things. And to argue for one in favor of the other is, 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 is mistaken. Another one of those splits is between function and beauty. Another one is between design and, and creation or building. So much of what Alexander stands for is based on how the rest of life works, is, is undercutting these splits and realizing that a genuinely living process will honor and generate them both. And, and hence, like, dissolve them as, as things you need to be on one side or, or another of the fence on. Uh, this is also page 340. I, I love this, and I just love the experience of this. I've had so many times now. He says, in each during a living process, he says, in each place, a being slowly emerges from the mist. A being slowly emerges from the mist. Okay, it's time to hear some more of Alexander's voice directly. This clip, like the clip I started this episode with, comes from a 2017 documentary called Spaces for the Soul by Chris Downey. That's available for free on YouTube. And that, I'll, and that I embed in and will link to in the show notes. The crux of the issue is wholeness is a real thing. And if you mention concept like wholeness, or you talk about harmony, or uh, the life of a thing, it may happen somebody will get a sort of glazed look in their eye, or they'll start saying, oh, you know, what, what's that, or assume that it's a matter of opinion or a matter of private taste. The place where I start, and where this whole subject has to start, is that that thing, that wholeness, the harmony which occurs, is a real palpable thing which we can understand, discover, it affects our feelings. Above all, it, it's real. All right, on to uh, book three of the Nature of Order series, which is a vision of a living world, where book two was the process of creating life. Alexander writes, Life in nature and in the humanly constructed world is generated by a process of unfolding in which living structure grows in stepwise fashion from the current condition. She 
also calls the system of centers which exists, and takes on a greater life by a series of what he calls structure-preserving transformations or adaptations. This idea of what Alexander originally called structure-preserving transformations in, in, in his last book came to refer to as wholeness-enhancing transformations is it's an extraordinary concept for me. And every, every step, every moment in a process that's alive in my own work, uh, that's what it has to be. That's what it is. So it's a transformation that simultaneously honours and extends and, and honours and, and strengthens what is while drawing out latent potential, drawing out fresh possibilities. Here's a clip in which you hear Alexander himself speaking about what he was then calling structure-preserving transformations. This is from the same presentation we heard from earlier in the episode, available on YouTube, and it's called Christopher Alexander, Patterns and Architecture. But then, of course, the practical question arises, how the hell do you produce this living structure? What do you have to do to actually produce it? You can recognize it, you can talk about it, you can clumsily try to find your way towards it in a particular case, but in general, what are the rules of its production? Now, the answer to this, I'm going to summarize extremely briefly, but, it's, but it is fascinating and it's of great importance, and it will lead me on, in a way, to my part three. It turns out that these living structures can only be produced by an unfolding wholeness. That is, there's a condition in which you have space in a certain state, you operate on it through things that I have come to call structure-preserving transformations, maintaining the whole at each step, but gradually introducing differentiations one after the other. And if these transformations are truly structure-preserving and structure-enhancing, then you can come out at the end with living structure. Very abstract, I know, but the punchline is the following. Number one, that is what happens mainly in the living structures we think of as nature. When you analyze carefully just what's going on and how, how things are happening in the natural world, it, th this sort of structure-preserving transformations tends to be what's going on most of the time, which is why, when nature being left alone, one recognizes, by and large, living structure is being produced. In the approaches that we currently have to the creation of the environment, that is to planning of buildings, planning of towns, construction of buildings, and so forth. Uh, that is simply not what is happening. The process of design that we currently recognize as normal is one where, uh, whether it's an architect or somebody else, is sort of m moving stuff around, trying to get into some kind of good configuration. Boom, you know, here's the good configuration. And then here's a set of drawings of this good configuration, and now we're going to build this good configuration, so on. But in fact, since it isn't unfolding step by step, in the structure-preserving way that I'm talking about, the result is never a living structure. 
later in the book on it was it was page two this is page three um, he says, I propose then that the world should be created by adaptive processes which act as nature does itself. They allow us to create a harmonious whole that embraces nature and creates buildings, streets and towns in a fashion which has the same deep structure as nature and has the same deep effect on us as a result. Uh, the point there still lands with resonance for me that unless the processes we use to generate forms, be they buildings or gardens or farms or businesses or whatever, unless those are, um, are adaptive processes in the same sense as the rest of life is adaptive process, then they won't have any depth, won't have any life or wholeness or the outcome as, as outcomes. The next quote is, Alexander says, What is the character of the kind of world where we experience emotional possession of the places we are in? It is a world in which the fine adaptation between people and their buildings and gardens and streets is so subtle, goes so deeply to the core of human experience, that the people who then live and work and play in that environment feel as if they belong there, as if it belongs to them, if they, as if they are part of it. As if, like an old shoe, it is completely and utterly theirs. My aim for the last few decades has been, through the use of living process, to construct a situation in our world where a deep, profound belonging can exist and does exist. Some of these ideas have really informed my development of living design process and the idea of the process itself as an organism in the sense of an ongoing process of organizing and bringing more harmony and coherence to um, into the pattern, uh, kind of hold, holding a place or, or, or whatever you're working on together in the, in the sense in which over time each part comes to belong more and more, including the people involved, um, to which to me is to become more organ-like, or what it means to be an organism, is to be a, an aspect of the whole that belongs to the whole and is contributing to the whole. So that I'm, as I reread these quotes, I see a lot of seeds of ideas that I've developed in my own directions in the, in the work on living design process. Uh, later in the book, so he talks about the process of generating gardens and so I'll link two more quotes. Let's, let's read those out. So living process in a garden depends on people following their own hearts, allowing the call of their own hearts, dreams, feeling to become actual in that place. And then in a section entitled Positive Space and Gardens, he writes, when, Then we build structures in these outdoor areas to differentiate them further into smaller living centres, animated by the structures, steps, walls, parapets, railings, seats, embankments, bridges, slopes that we build in them. And then we allow natural life to rip loose the plants, the grass, the trees, the bushes, and let these form still further centres, which are like units of space, which then animate the positive space even further. That will happen almost of its own accord if the initial positive space has been correctly made. This is the form the living process takes in making a garden. And the last quote I'll read for now 
contrasts a living dynamic process with the more conventional static plan-based process. He says, if a dynamic process is follow followed, so that each time the next step follows existing things, preserves the structure and creates and maintains relationships, we get a harmonious living community. If instead a static master plan based approach is followed and the 20 or 100 things are built according to the original drawing or plan, then they will exist for the most part without real functional relationships. The whole is unrelated in its internal elements. There has been no structure preserving what he later called wholeness enhancing, going on, step after step, and the whole remains dead. And the final quote I'll read out is from Alexander's last book, which came out in 2012, titled The Battle for the Life and Beauty of the Earth, A Struggle Between Two World Systems. This is the book that documents the creation process that generated the ocean campus, a uh, uh, school campus and college campus in, in Japan, which Alexander considered to be a success, a successful demonstration of his, of his theories, which among other things involved an enormous amount of mocking up where Alexander would design by placing flags on the ground and, and by staying on the site, working on the site, letting the site, as he said elsewhere, share its secrets. Page 187, he says, Each building is intended to be placed in a position which feels exactly right, where it has an immediate felt harmony with its surroundings. Each space, each line of movement, each axis, each boundary is also supposed to be something which comes directly from the real place itself, fits the land perfectly. Every detail must arise out of the reality of the land. The animal-like figure of the building complex was now consciously being sought. Every nuance was examined, accepted or rejected. We knew we were playing for high stakes and we had to pay attention to the process by which the animal spirit would reveal itself to us and become substantial. Everyone had to make a shift in orientation to the project, stop thinking about this as a building project and start thinking of it as, have, as a living thing. Together we found ourselves searching for the living animal. And then a bit later on page 199 he follow, picks up that thread and says, For people who visited the site for the first time, this is once built, it was easy to understand these beautiful spaces just by seeing them and walking through them because the whole, the space as a whole, as it was created on the campus by the buildings, was so utterly harmonious and real. It brought about the feeling of a living entity, an animal with its own right of being there, providing breath for both students and teachers and for craftsmen and for carpenters and plasterers and for those who made the concrete and plaster ornaments. It was alive. The place was alive because we had struggled, worked the stones, and spent the strength of our bodies to shape every part just right, knowing then that the animal would have its spirit. The animal we had been looking for, the spirit of the place that we had worked so hard for, for such a long time, had finally arrived. So there you have it. A selection of quotes, you know, impartial, so many massively significant aspects of his, his work only hinted at and yet I, I really wanted to speak these words 
from Alex Alexander's that came from Alexander and have infused so many aspects of my work just to bring them into the space of, of this project and this episode. I feel joy in just letting that energy flow out through this podcast into the world. And next in the blog post, I share what was this, three videos made by other people. Uh, one, I'm still watching it. I, I, only realized, I only noticed it very recently. And I'll, I'll share a little audio snippet now of something Christopher Alexander says at the start. This is, this is linked, this clip is linked to in the film. It's called Christopher Alexander Life in Buildings. And I'll just get the name of the, the outfit that Cystasis Films. Really one of the very largest problems that is facing the earth just now is rarely mentioned. Um, and that is the spread of ugliness. By the standards of the 20th century, it sounds like a a sort of rather trivial and unimportant issue. It's not. It's on the same scale as the alarm that was spread when people began to realize that the Brazilian rainforest was being destroyed. Uh, there's another one called Spaces for the Soul, which we've heard uh, Alexander's voice coming through. And there's that talk he gave to a room of of software developers called Patterns and Architecture, where it turns out that Alexander's work inspired and contributed directly to hypertext, to like agile approaches to software programming, to to the whole idea of a Wikipedia page. The, the inventor of Wikipedia was directly inspired by Alexander. So he, Alexander's had this monumental impact on all these disciplines outside of architecture. And because... I mean, I guess it was a combination of the radicalness of the ideas and the, I, I get the sense that it was kind of, he had a confrontational style of presenting them, which I could probably learn a lot from what worked and didn't work for him. Um, his, his, his impact on architecture as a whole seems to be very tiny relative to the potential impact. Um, and yet his indirect impact on all these other fields is, is huge. Okay, well, bringing this to a close, I wrote some closing words, and these I wrote these maybe five, six years ago, and it feels appropriate for me to share them now. So this, is, this is me reflecting on where living design process came from for me, and this will, will bring this episode towards a close. So I wrote, where did living design process start for me? Well, one image jumps to mind, so I'll run with that. It is January 2014. I'm standing next to my mother on lush green grass. We're looking across her new vegetable garden. After almost 10 years as a professional permaculture design consultant, this job had been different. The writings of Christopher Alexander had been on my radar for some years, with a small but significant influence on my design practice. In particular, in a passage from The Timeless Way of Buildings, one I read out earlier, 
about differentiation. Alexander had helped me move away from seeing sound design as an effectively mechanical process of assembling elements into whole systems. I was now seeing sound design as an organic process of unfolding parts from within the fabric of an already existing whole system. But on this project, I had somehow completed a multi-year slow-motion jump from the former to the latter way of viewing and practicing design. Indeed, during the process, I had entered and started applying ideas from Alexander's later writings. After devouring his 2012 book, Battle for the Life and Beauty of the Earth, I dove into his four-volume, 2,000-page masterwork, The Nature of Order, published in 2002. Back to my mother and I, standing there surveying her freshly planted garden beds. She asked what I was up to. From my hands I held open book two of The Nature of Order. I just a few minutes prior read Alexander making an intriguing claim. He proposed that if one was to design and create using the living process he's been developing through his 60-year career, the result will be infused with 15 specific properties. Fifteen properties Alexander claims are characteristic, definitive even, of what he calls living structure. Living structure is another way of saying stuff that is as fitted to its context as almost anything we consider part of nature. A tree, for instance, or a jellyfish, or a wave, or a rock. The properties have names like strong centers, levels of scale, gradients, alternating repetition, and echoes. It is for another time and place to list or explain them all. Go read his books. The point here is simply that they exist and that Alexander claims that if you go about creating something in the way he advocates, it will have many if not all of these properties in it. The moment I read this, I walked over to the garden, my mother joining me, curious to see what I was up to. Let's settle this right now, Christopher, I was thinking. I hadn't been aware of the 15 properties during the process of designing and building the garden. As for my co-designers, mum and dad, they had barely even heard of Alexander. And yet as a process facilitator, or as what I would today call a, re a process resource, I'd been keeping as us as true as I knew to the living process Alexander says will reliably birth these 15 properties into the world. Being true to the process means that we'd been consciously engaging our whole body minds and letting the parts of the garden emerge from within the context of the whole space as we laid it out and shaped it up. It was a golden opportunity to empirically test Alexander's contention. I remember my spine tingling as I looked from the list of properties on the open page to the garden and back again. Every property was there. And I'll say it again, every property was there. That moment is, is as good a moment as any to nominate as the moment that living process and what, what I'm now calling living design process really took root in my soul. I thank you, Christopher Alexander, for in your beautiful writings, helping germinate the seed that lies inside us all. I'm sad you died, and I'm so glad you lived.